What's the difference between fiction and reality? Fiction has to make sense. Tom Clancy. This is an experimental podcast that gets you to think deeper about films you might not like. My name is Jacob Foltz, and I am your mediator through cinema therapy. Session one. Our focus is on... Inception. Dedicated to Keith Anderson Doe. Written and directed by Christopher Nolan, the plot follows Dominic Cobb, a professional thief who steals information by infiltrating the subconscious. Cobb is offered a chance to get his criminal history erased if he succeeds in planting another person's idea into a target's subconscious. You might be surprised to see Inception on a Divisive Films podcast. Because everyone likes Inception, right? And you're not wrong. Most people like Inception. Most people love Inception. You see, the film's divisiveness doesn't come from a love it or hate it kind of way. It comes from whether or not it's a masterpiece of cinema or an above average action film. And boy, are there arguments about this. Masterpiece advocators call it the smartest blockbuster in years, citing its intelligence about lucid dreaming, philosophical concepts of dreamscape, and give credit to it being a successful summer action flick with great spectacle and emphasis on practical effects. From Helen Earnshaw on FemaleFirst.co, quote, It really is the action moments that are truly wonderful, a gravity-less Joseph Gordon-Levitt being one of the moments that truly stands out, unquote. And of course, we have Dominic Cobb, played by everyone's favorite actor, Leonardo DiCaprio, who played a similar role as a conflicted family man in Shutter Island, another divisive film that came out earlier that year. Some cite the emotional resonance of the film, stating how most action flicks have a lack of emotional stake. Helen from Female First continues, quote, It's Cobb's story that really gives this movie its heart and its power. It may be a stunning film, but Nolan has kept a very human story of love at its core. Sidebar here, curiously enough, the film was originally going to be a straightforward dream heist flick in the Ocean's Eleven style, but Nolan later changed it, feeling that the dream sequences needed to be emotionally charged, which is where Maul and Cobb's whole story arc came from. The masterpiece advocators love how it breathes an interesting new life into the heist genre, where car chases influence anti-gravity in the dreams below, and getting killed means moving dream levels or plunging into the subconscious. Quote, imagine a film made in 2010 where you have absolutely no idea where it's going or how it will end. These were the worlds created by revolutionary filmmakers like Kubrick, Allen, Cronenberg, and Lynch. Unquote. That's from Awards Daily. It sticks to the mind and invites repeat viewings and opens up intellectual conversations. It makes use of a constant exposition to guide audiences through the mind-bending spectacle. This is from Cinema Soldier, quote, Inception has stunning performances, but its true accomplishment is that it reminds us that though we live in a sea of remakes, brands, and sequels, anything is still possible. Unquote. Basically, Inception is the King Salmon 
in a sea of chum. So let's talk about that, the chum. What are the other movies that people are comparing Inception to? You know, what makes Inception different and what are those films? Inception came at a time when the idea of making a film franchise was the best way to profit from a film, which is a time we're still in and probably will continue to be in for a while. Franchises originated from old serials and horror films, but it was popularized with Godfather Part Two which won a bunch of Academy Awards, but it sparked this wave of franchises ranging from things like Jaws 4 to Lord of the Rings. Basically, studios use franchises because they're a safer bet. It's easier and cheaper to market them. By creating a sequel, you don't need to create as much marketing materials for your film because the first one is the marketing material. So Inception came out in 2010, so what were the most popular films of 2010? Well, the biggest box office takes were almost all part of film franchises. Toy Story 3, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1, Shrek Forever After, Iron Man 2, Tangled, which I left Tangled in here because even though it's not part of an ongoing story or anything, it's still part of the Disney franchise. And of course we have the third installment in the middle-aged women screaming for underage boys to take their shirts off saga. Of course I'm talking about Twilight Eclipse. And these films that later became film franchises, How to Train Your Dragon and Despicable Me. Those are nine of the 10 top box office takes, and they're all part of franchises or they had their eyes fixated on becoming one. And what was the other film? Well, that was Inception. So you can see that the tickets filmgoers purchased were mostly for these franchises, things that they're familiar with already, which says a lot about us. What about leading up to Inception? Well, the year prior, in 2009, we had another huge spectacle film, which was James Cameron's Avatar. Inception praisers could be referring to this film. It leans heavy on visual effects and motion capture to give the audience its spectacle. Maybe filmgoers have a longing for practical effects. Maybe it's because so many thought Avatar looked great, sounded great, but was too close to a story that they're freshly familiar with. I'm talking about Pocahontas and or Dances with Wolves. Back to the summer when Inception came out, 2010, that summer was kicked off with another movie called Avatar, which was The Last Airbender, and that left a sour taste in everyone's mouth. The film was looking for a franchise and it just kind of fell on its face. After Avatar, the big releases were Twilight, Despicable Me, and The Girl Who Played With Fire, which was a sequel to A Girl With A Dragon Tattoo that wasn't well received. Then Inception. Then we had a bunch of late summer comedies, Get Him to the Greek, a soft sequel to Forgetting Sarah Marshall, The Other Guys starring Will Ferrell, and of course the Guy Cry film, The Expendables, followed by Eat, Pray, Love, Nanny McPhee, The Last Exorcism, and I have to mention Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, one of my favorites from that year, died at the box office but received a cult following later. Basically the things people are buying tickets for are either part of franchises or are looking to become their own franchise. And when praisers of Inception say, this is not a film based on any popular source material or pre-existing film brand or story, it feels entirely unique and comes from a filmmaker we all love, it's a special treat from Hollywood, one that we all want. What they're really saying is, this is the most unique summer film marketed to me. Because the thing is, there were plenty of non-franchise, non-brand films that year. 
they just weren't really in the summer. It just felt like big budget films were either doing franchises, animations, or going in the heavy visual effects direction. And in Roll's Inception, the exception to the rule. So why did Inception get made and what makes it so special that it gets a summer release? Let's back up. Almost exactly two years prior, on July 18th, 2008, another film came out, a sequel, The Dark Knight, which was huge. It raked in a billion dollars, received some awards, it was regarded as the best superhero movie of all time, and still is. And it was written and directed by the same filmmaker as Inception, Christopher Nolan. So using the success of The Dark Knight, Christopher Nolan rolled into Warner Brothers, told them about this film he wanted to make called Inception, and Warner Brothers gave him roughly $160 million for his project. When it was announced that Leonardo DiCaprio was joining the cast, many people became very excited for this film, thus ramping up the hype even more. And the hype was real. It's an original idea from the filmmaker behind The Dark Knight, starring Leonardo DiCaprio that got greenlit almost immediately with a franchise-level budget, but isn't based on any pre-existing material that was unheard of at the time and still is unheard of now. So, of course, filmgoers and Nolan fanboys were hyped. I was a Nolan fanboy, and I was hyped. When the teaser trailer hit, filmgoers were met with the centrifuging hallway scene with Gordon Levitt. It felt like this movie was going to be a spectacle film that Kubrick would make. It was just really exciting. Then when the review brigade lifted, reviews poured in calling it a masterpiece, and it sat on Rotten Tomatoes at 100%. Looking back at early reviews, you can see this overwhelming wave of outspoken reviews demanding it to be seen by everyone, including from people who just thought the film was okay. But they still said at the end, this is a must-see film. Which, how often does that happen? Which leads to the biggest complaint about Inception. The hype. So let's define hype. Hype has two meanings. The verb, when someone gets excited about a particular thing. The noun, extravagant or intensive publicity or promotion. The word originates from hyperbole, meaning exaggerated statements or claims not meant to be taken literally. Hype is this excitement that just digs into you and pulses through your body, and others are either attracted to that or annoyed by it. Steve Zetchik from Los Angeles Times, talking about Inception here, quote, what it does well is scratch a very particular itch at a time that few films are scratching anything at all. Unfortunately, the hype is setting Inception up for failure. No film should have to bear the weight of this much expectation. When you go into a theater and expect nothing, you're probably going to like the film that you watch. But if you go in expecting it's going to revolutionize cinema, then you're probably going to be disappointed. So Chris Nolan has this following, and it's, it's part of the hype. So let's talk about this filmmaker. Christopher Nolan has proven himself to be a master of realism and non-linear storytelling. He favors natural or documentary-style lighting, muted colors, real locations instead of studios, and convoluted plots. So what happens when you have a realist filmmaker create a film with a dreamscape setting? Well, Inception, duh. And this dreamscape that we see in Inception, this linear, controlled, straightforward dreamscape, 
has a lot of people bothered. They say that the dreams in Inception don't feel like dreams at all. They feel like Bond set piece settings. Tim Roby from the Daily Telegraph says, quote, It purports to be about people's dreams being invaded, but demonstrates no instinct at all for what a dream has ever felt like, and no flair for making us feel like we're in one at any point. Unquote. Which makes sense when you think about it. The dream sequences are incredibly linear and are more about controlling other people's dreams than they are about dreaming themselves. There are elements of realistic dreaming, though. In the opening scene, Cobb is dunked in a pool of water and water starts crashing into the warehouse Cobb is in. And that's a real moment of waking up from a dream. So Inception has these moments, like the train plowing through the street or the city flipping on itself or Ma's elevator or Ma popping in whenever she feels like it. But it's all used to propel the action aspect of the film. The dreams in Inception don't have the randomness that you see in other films and dreams themselves. And because of this, it feels more like the 1991 film The Matrix than it does an actual dream. It feels like this crafted fake world being pulled over our eyes and it's the control of the dream by the main characters that really gives it that feel. It's meant to trick, it's meant to mimic reality. And that's where this criticism really comes from. It just doesn't feel like an actual dream. Films that are more focused on dreamscape as a theme are going to plunge into something a little more surreal. For instance, David Lynch's work, which if you haven't seen the body horror film Eraserhead, it's one of the most divisive films ever. Eraserhead has a dreamlike quality to it, even though it's not explicitly said that the character is dreaming. It's just a feeling. Terry Gilliam's films have a dreamlike quality to them. There's also Eternal Sunshine for the Spotless Mind. In that film, it explicitly says that they are dreaming, but it still feels like a dream. And of course, Paprika, an anime film that is so similar to Inception. It's about a psychologist who uses a device to enter his patient's dreams in order to help them. It makes you think that Christopher Nolan took the ideas behind Paprika and ran with it for a live-action Hollywood heist film. But Paprika dives into dream territory that Inception barely scratches the surface of. Another dreamscape film is Enter the Void by Gaspar Noe. The film is told entirely in the point of view from the main character, and the dreamscape is therefore set up to be as close to what you'd expect in a dream or a DMT trip. A sort of blend of those two things. Enter the Void really uses that idea and relates it back to the heavy, hard-to-look content of the film, and explores the feeling of death. Mulholland Drive uses dreamscape in a different way. It's more of a surrealistic dreamscape in the form of a film noir. It sets up a mystery, then lets you figure out the pieces. It's more of a thriller, kind of. Pretty much all those films are thrillers, to an extent. I mean, some of them aren't, but they're all using the foundation of dreams and memories to recreate the dreamscape. And what makes Inception's dreamscape different than all those films is that it's all about the heist. It's about the action and the spectacle of the set pieces. It abandons surrealism in favor of structured dreams because when this movie gets going during the heist, that strict structure is needed to keep the viewer to understand the four layers of action that are taking place. And each dream world is specific and it has a specific color palette, look, and design. These are all working for the purpose of propelling the story in a linear fashion to give the audience this heist film. Criticizers who say that the dreams aren't real in Inception are kind of right, but that's what makes Inception interesting.
The criticizers that say the film should have more creative elements, more bizarre, surreal, and uncanny dream elements, those people are wrong because the vague ending won't work if it's surreal. And the constant questioning of reality from Cobb's character won't work because it'd be too easy to tell what's real and what's not. And the totems won't work and the whole stealing information won't work because the target will easily be able to identify the dream. My point is that the style of dreaming is so centered around every single element of this film that to ask for more surreal dreams is to ask for a different film altogether. Now, in doing research for this podcast, I found that the same elements that make up the arguments for criticism of a film are oftentimes the same elements that make up the arguments for praises of a film. Inception is no exception. Although movies like Brazil and Eyes Wide Shut revel in the surrealist dreamscape, Inception has greater goals of spectacle. Using the logic of dreams to dazzle audiences with mind-bending thoughts and images. The fact that a realist filmmaker brought dreaming to a heist film is interesting in itself. So I have a confession. I didn't see Inception when it first came out. While everyone else was enjoying the King Salmon that was Inception, I was filleting King Salmon up in Alaska. Igigik, Alaska. That's the name of the town. Igigik. It's a small town with less than 100 people living there. It's only accessible by boat or plane, and I was working in a fish cannery. It was between my freshman and sophomore year of college, and I wanted to make some money for the next year. When I returned to Seattle, the hype for Inception was over. I asked my friend if he wanted to go see it with me, and he just groaned into his Taco Bell burrito. Looking back, what I missed was insane. There was a pop culture debate about the ending, philosophical essays relating to Socrates and Plato and reality versus dreams that I don't understand at all, fans picking apart the numbers 528491, which is the combination to the safe at the very end, 528 is the hotel room number they fall asleep in during the Joseph Gordon-Levitt sequence. Levitt sets explosive charges beneath that room in room 491. And the hex color, 528491, which if you don't know, a hex color is basically a number that is given to a whole bunch of colors. But 528491 is a dark cyan, similar to the main color in the background of the DVD cover. There is a PDF that outlined the plot of the movie with each level of dream space. There were essays on water symbolism, the significance of trains, theories about how the whole film is in Cobb's dream, how Cobb's totem isn't the spinning top but is actually his wedding ring, how Cobb incepted himself, which is my favorite because it's recognizing the connection between character progression and how that idea of change must come from within the character. For weeks, people argued about the film's allegorical meanings, talking about how it's an allegory for filmmaking, talking about the film's stature and achievements. One dude even made a one-hour speech for his graduate thesis on why Inception should have won Best Picture that year, and his main argument? That it went over the Academy's head. And a guy on YouTube found out that if you slow down the classical music that they play to wake up from the dreams, you get something strangely familiar. Here's the classical track.
And here's the Inception soundtrack. It was all awesome and a bit overwhelming how many answers and connections you could find. It was also just so loud, and if you weren't into it, you probably found it extremely annoying because you couldn't avoid it even if you tried. Inception is a film that got hit by the group analysis that comes with the internet age, everybody working together to solve a film's mysteries. And you can actually see how other film franchises and TV shows have taken this culture of movie details and wrapped their shows and movies around it. Westworld on HBO, for instance, which was created by Lisa Joy and Jonathan Nolan, which is Chris Nolan's brother, the show blends timelines in ways that are intentionally meant to trick you, which more than likely leaves the viewer with this puzzle that seems to be missing the edge pieces. But with the internet, you can easily gather with fans or just scour message boards to find out what clues you missed to keep up with the show. Marvel is best at it. Marvel rewards the superhero fans that are invested in the comic books. And there are conversations about Easter eggs and hidden gems that reward the audience for knowing these details, be it online or in the theater. It's this conversation that's changing the landscape of pop cinema. Inception came at the advent of internet movie culture, where review aggregation systems have steadily been increasing their impact. Armand White from the New York Film Critics Circle said, and I quote, By dumping reviewers onto one website and assigning spurious percentage enthusiasm points to the discrete reviews, the internet takes revenge on individual expression. This shows an oddly anarchic tendency in pop culture to vulgarize professionalism, to distrust it, as surely as the Rotten Tomatoes fanboys rapidly anticipate higher percentages for the Hollywood blockbusters geared towards their adolescent taste, this distrust demonstrates our journalism's failure to encourage cinematic literacy. In other words, there's a value to what film critics do, and reading an individual's report on a film is going to give you a better understanding of what that film is and what it's going to mean to you that a percentage is never going to do. There's also some self-blame, basically saying there's a reason why people are gravitating towards Rotten Tomatoes and Metacritic, because the reviews that we are writing are not good enough for what they want. I, for one, think it's just a question of finding the right person for you. Inception is this product of pop culture films, but doesn't come from the same place as pop culture filmmaking. It's not as theme park as films commonly seen soaring high on Rotten Tomatoes, because Rotten Tomatoes and other review aggregation sites don't account for divisiveness. A film at 50% could easily be a divisive film or a mediocre film. From A.O. Scott in his New York Times article, Everyone's a Critic, quote, Film culture on the internet does not only speed up the story of a movie's absorption into the cultural bloodstream, but also reverses the sequence. Maybe my memory is fuzzy or maybe I'm dreaming, but I think it used to be that masterpiece was the last word, the end of the discussion, rather than the starting point. But in this case, we end up with where we should have started, 
wondering what the movie is about, what it means, puzzling over symbols and plot points, unquote. The whole idea of having a review aggregation site to give a number on a film to determine whether it's a masterpiece or not is, well, like A.O. Scott said, it feels like that should be the end of the conversation and not the beginning. I guess it feels like people are missing out on the wonderful world of talking about movies versus just coming out of the movie and being done. Movies should be starting points for conversations, not ending points. And the unfortunate reality of all of this is that it's a goal for franchises to reach these high percentages. So the film's goal isn't to say something interesting or impactful or lasting. It's simply to be one step above mediocrity, because that's all you need to get 100% on Rotten Tomatoes. This all leads me back to the point of this podcast and the point of this session. The conversation. You should be part of the film conversation because you are a listener. I know because you are literally listening to this podcast right now. If you want films that reflect your thoughts and your opinions, then you should speak up, vote with your wallet, and let others know the bizarre films that you're into. It's great and awesome that Inception hit a huge crowd. But there are so many other wonderfully bizarre films to be watched, and if you find one that has a low or mid rating on Rotten Tomatoes or Metacritic, then you should make an effort to share it with others because it is so low, and because it's so likely that one of those films will speak deeply to another person. And that's the reality that matters to me. If you have any thoughts, suggestions, or comments, send them to cinematherapypodcast at gmail.com. It is critical for podcasts to get ratings and reviews and subscribers right out the gate. So if it's summer or fall of 2018, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. And it'll get these divisive films circulating into more places where I think they really need to be. If you didn't like Inception, but you like it now, please honor your bet and buy me a coffee. Check out the link in the show notes for that. Our theme music is by Curtis Skinner. The Cinema Therapy logo is an original painting by Kim Bala. If you want more of me, I'm on a weekly discussion podcast about movies. That's Back to Back Films podcast. I'm on it with two other filmmakers, and it's a blast. Coming up next in session two, we'll be talking about the film Melancholia and how art films can help define you. I'm Jacob Foltz, and let's end with a word from Christopher Nolan from his 2015 commencement speech at Princeton University. It puts to bed the pop culture debate about whether Cobb's totem fell or not at the end of Inception. I apologize to those of you who haven't seen it because I'm about to spoil the ending of it for you. <laughs> but at the end of the film, there's a spinning top that's spinning and if it falls or doesn't fall is the key idea. Is it a dream? Is it reality? And the way the end of that film worked, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, Cobb, he was off with his kids. He was in his own subjective reality and didn't really care anymore. And that makes a statement that perhaps all levels of reality are equally valid. But the camera moves over to the spinning top and just before the spinning top appears to be wobbling, there's a cut to black and I skip out of the back of the theater before people catch me. And there's a very, very strong reaction from the audience, uh, usually a bit of a groan, but um, the point is, 
objectively, it matters to the audience in absolute terms, even though what they're watching is a fiction, is its own virtual reality. But the question of whether that's a dream or whether it's real is the one I've been asked the most about any of the, the films I've made. It matters to people enormously, and that's the point about reality. Reality matters. It won't be transcended. Uh, we had a dream of being outside for this, uh, this occasion. Reality intervened, and, and we're in here. Uh, we, we live in the real world. We deal in the real world. And in the great tradition of these speeches, generally what happens is the speaker says something along the lines of, you need to chase your dreams. But I'm not going to say that because I don't believe it. I don't want you to chase your dreams. I want you to chase your reality. And I want you to understand that you chase your reality not at the expense of your dreams, but as the foundation of your dreams. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next one.